Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. The summer 2023 issue of the American Scholar Magazine just came out, and in it, there's a really special essay by the musician Julian Saperiti about the George Igawa Orchestra. Entirely composed of Japanese Americans interned at Heart Mountain in Wyoming, this jazz band performed all the swing hits of the era for the people who were wrongfully imprisoned. One of Julian Saperiti's music projects is called Nono Boy, which reminded me of an interview I did a couple years ago about the 1956 novel called Nono Boy. So in honor of the release of the magazine and also to refresh everyone's memories about this incredible book, we're rerunning this episode from 2018. In a landscape littered with the riches of the hyphenated American novel, Korean-American, Nigerian-American, Mexican-American, it's hard to go back and remember a time when none of these books were out there. When the only thing you'd find in bookstores from Asian-American authors were missionary memoirs and Chinese cookbooks. This episode is about the first Japanese-American novel. So imagine you're back in 1956. It's barely a decade after World War II has ended and your second-generation Japanese-American, or Nisei. Your parents were in the internment camps, but they don't want to talk about it. You fought in World War II, but some of your friends refused to fight. They were no-no boys, who got their nicknames from answering no to two trick questions from the U.S. government that was trying to draft them. Those friends are out of prison now, but it's been a few years. The last thing you'd expect someone with that biography... Someone like John Okada would be to write a novel that explodes every stereotype of the model minority, the quiet Americans who just want to get by after a dark period of history. But John Okada does. He writes his first novel, Nono Boy, in 1956 about Ichiro Yamada, a fictional draft resistor who earns two years in prison and the hostility of his family and community when he returns to Seattle. Ichiro is no quiet American. He's got a voice and a character that American fiction has never seen. But John Okada's novel is ignored. Because everybody wants to put that history behind them. The book goes out of print, John Okada never publishes again, and he dies in obscurity in 1971. Luckily for us, though, that's not the end of the story. Frank Abe is one of the co-editors of John Okada, a new book that for the first time paints a full picture of the novelist's life, bundling his biography with newly discovered work and critical essays. Frank Abe joins us from Seattle to talk about the era in which Nono Boy was discovered. He was there, and what the book can teach us about our own moment. Thank you so much for joining us, Frank. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for really taking an interest in this. So can you tell us the story of how this book was rediscovered? It's a great story. The legend goes that uh, four writers, uh, Frank Chin, Jeff Chan, Los Ninata, Sean Wong, uh, formed the Combined Asian American Resources Project in the early 70s. And the early 70s was a time uh, of the birth of Asian American studies, uh, a time when the field was just starting to emerge, and there was a need for texts. Writers were looking for their antecedents. They were looking for the writers who came before them, uh, looking in used bookstores. And the legend goes that Jeff Chan stumbled in at Berkeley Bookshop and found a used copy of the hardcover of Nono Boy. They opened it up and were stunned to find this novel that was 
filled with the unexpressed rage of Japanese Americans following their mass incarceration by the U.S. government in World War II. Um, it was a unique voice, an authentic voice, and they um, anthologized it in their uh, groundbreaking anthology of Asian American literature called Ai, Ai being the sound that Japanese soldiers made when stabbed by U.S. soldiers in wartime propaganda movies. And as the writer Sean Wong says in his essay in our book, you know, No-No Boy resonated so much with the things he was trying to figure out as a young undergraduate at Berkeley. He was of draft age during the Vietnam War. The book was about making those kinds of decisions. Should I go into the Army and potentially fight a war I thought was unjust, or should I go to prison? As, as Sean says in his essay, you know, John Okada wrote this novel just 10 years after the end of World War II. And Okada had no Japanese-American literary tradition to call upon or to inform his work. Uh, The man wrote in complete isolation. And to be able to hear his narrative voice in this book that they found in a used bookshop, disregarded and unknown, uh, was an amazing feat. And so they not only anthologized it in IE, they decided to republish the book uh, really out of their own pockets. And so they raised a couple thousand dollars and reset the book, put a new cover on it, uh, by coincidence and happenstance, my photograph was used as a basis for the drawing on the cover of, the, of that edition because uh, I was an actor at the time working with Frank Chin at the Asian American Theater Workshop in San Francisco. Um, and so my, my connection with the rediscovery of Noto Boy goes back to the very beginning. Yeah, no kidding. So what happened next? The Carp Collective discovers this shockingly original book. I mean, I think they'd want to meet the author, right? Oh, yeah. So they looked up his widow in Pasadena. And she told them, gosh, you know, John passed just a few months before you called. Uh, He would have liked to have met you. Uh, And they said, well, we still want to talk to you, Dorothy. So they flew down to Pasadena and uh, they were eager to find out what other works that he had had left. And she said, well, you know, John wrote a second novel uh, about the Issei, the first generation Japanese Americans in, in America. But I wrote a letter to UCLA, and they weren't interested, and I didn't think anybody cared about the first book, so I just burned it. And Frank and Sean and Lawson were just speechless. They were stunned uh, that uh, you know, this, this second novel uh, was, uh, was lost, and it, it remains lost to this day. So Nono Boy has always been shrouded in this kind of mystique and mystery, uh, and that, that's what drew me to doing this book called John Okada, uh, clever title from University of Washington Press, um, <laughs> and uh, because you know, in, in interviewing Dorothy, the widow of John Okada, uh, Frank Chin wrote this a very evocative essay called "In Search of John Okada" uh, for the Seattle Weekly, and it was appended as an afterword to all paperback editions, starting with the Carp edition, and. You know, it, it just created a kind of sense of longing and mystery and loss and tragedy that, um, you know, it's, it's stuck with me for 40 years. Um, I'd done a film about the, the Japanese-American draft resistors for PBS called Conscience of the Constitution uh, in 2000. I thought I'd follow it up with a film about the life of John Okada. Uh, I interviewed his family and his friends, and uh, it didn't finish the film because it, the, the story wasn't there yet. We hadn't done enough work to understand who John Okada was and what his legacy was. Uh, that, that changed when our collaborator, uh, historian Greg Robinson, 
scrolling through some microfilms, the, the Northwest Times, a post-war Seattle Nisei newspaper, and uh, came across five short stories by John Okada, a one-act play, uh, and uh, called me up, wrote to me, and said, uh, do you want these? And I said, my God, you know, Greg, you found these short stories that had been, you know, kind of talked about, uh, but no one had ever seen them. Uh, and so then Greg convinced me that this was a book. Uh, and then we recruited another literary scholar, Floyd Chung of Smith College. And together we found an additional work. John Okada wrote a poem, The Night of Pearl Harbor, called I Must Be Strong, uh, which was his first piece of creative writing. We have a great discovery in the microfilm of the University of Washington Daily on the front page on December 11th, four days after Pearl Harbor. And no one had known about this poem because it was written anonymously. You know, whether it was modesty on John's part or uh, more likely uh, need to protect his family from retribution in the wake of Pearl Harbor when people like his father were being arrested throughout Seattle for being, you know, suspected collaborators with the enemy. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the disparity, I guess, between John Okada's own life and of the narrator of Nona Boy Ichiro, because what's interesting is John was not a Nona Boy. He actually had a distinguished career in the military, and he takes on this totally different perspective in writing the novel that I just think is so interesting. No, No Boy is not an autobiography, uh, and many people mistake it for one. John Okada was uh, a Nisei everyman in many ways. He volunteered for the military intelligence service out of college, uh, and he flew hazardous missions over the Japanese coastline listening for enemy radio signals that could yield valuable information for the Allies. But he wrote a novel about a fellow Nisei with the opposite experience, you know, someone who objected to incarceration and refused to be drafted out of an American concentration camp. And through, you know, this anti-hero, we get dizzying internal monologues arguing with himself about whether he did the right thing or not as, as the protagonist. That was not Okada's experience. One theory is that all the MIS veterans were conducting secret operations in World War II. And when they were discharged in 46, they were told to shut up about their wartime experience, kind of a gag order. And they all did. They, they, none of them talked about their experiences. And uh, Okada may have felt that he was not free to write about his own experience. Then he met a fellow in Seattle, high school classmate, you know, not a close friend, a guy named Jim Akutsu, who was a draft resistor, a guy who did refuse the draft in the Minidoka concentration camp on the grounds that he'd be glad to fight or be drafted out of a concentration camp if the U.S. would simply let his parents go home and restore his rights as a citizen. You know, that didn't happen. Uh, and so he went to trial and was convicted, spent two years at McNeil Island Federal Penitentiary south of Seattle, and was released just about the time that Okada got back to Seattle, returned to school, was attending the University of Washington, and uh, was taking creative writing classes. Okada and Akutsu hooked up. John was working in a Warsaw Plus store at the time, and Akutsu would go hang out with him. And then John would say, hey, let's go to the Wame Club. Let's go to uh, Taitung, uh, eat, have a, have a meal, have a drink. And Jim started to tell his stories about prison, about being a draft resistor, about his mother, 
who actually, like the protagonist in the novel, shared the delusion that Japan had won the war and that ships would bring, you know, the victorious Japanese to come rescue true believers like her. So John took a lot of notes as Jim was talking. And when he sat down to write 10 years later in Detroit, Michigan, that became the foundation for the novel Nono Boy. I think that sort of gets at the experience of being Japanese-American at the time that Okada was writing this, you know, just 10 years after uh, after the internment camps and after the war, because, you know, it presents such a very different view than the one that Japanese Americans themselves had been sort of boxed into as the model minority at the time. Can you talk a bit about how um, Okada's book and these perspectives sort of blew that open? Yeah, the model minority uh, was created uh, in the New York Times in, in a William Peterson essay in 1957. The Japanese American Citizen League, uh, which still exists today, their historian, Bill Hosokawa, wrote a popular history uh, in the late 60s called uh, Nisei, the Quiet Americans. So, you know, the quiet American, the model minority, was the public image of Japanese Americans uh, in the post-war period. And Nono Boy, John Okada's novel, everything about Nono Boy challenges this overall amnesia about the camps, the prevailing values of our community at the time, which mostly wanted to forget and fit in. The novel met with silence. So can you talk a little bit more about what makes this book so powerful in your mind, and I guess why it stuck with you, why you wanted to pursue this project? You know, I, I was hanging out with the CARP boys, the Combined Asian American Resources Project in San Francisco in the 70s, around the time when, the, when they republished the novel. There was just an, a, a raw honesty, a raw a, a vernacular in Okada's writing that that was unlike anything that we had seen before. A lot of uh, Asian American literature at the time was uh, no more than Chinese American Christian autobiographies, you know, Chinese cookbooks, you know, Japanese travelogues. Um, and this was a raw, unvarnished, gritty voice that, uh, and some, often profane, that revealed this unexpressed anger that the Nisei felt about their treatment by the government in World War II and the fact that really they had been disinherited uh, of, you know, billions of dollars in today's dollars in land, farms, businesses, education, uh, which they could not pass on to the children, my generation. Uh, and yet the, the prevailing idea of don't talk about the camps because we don't want to pass on our anger, uh, uh, our rage, our, our bitterness. Bitterness was the big way. We don't want to pass on the bitter, our bitterness to our children because we want, we want them to succeed. We want, we want them to go to college and have a decent life. Not a great life, but a decent life. Um, so so Nono Boy said those things that Denise were not able to say. Uh, that's probably one reason why they turned away from it when the book came out. It was just something they could not touch. Yeah, and there's this this line I love from Frank Chin's afterward where he says, um, you know, the book was so good, it freed me to be trivial. Yeah. And then <laughs> it's so great because, I mean, it gives you having a book that sort of says the unspeakable gives you the option to continue having that conversation or just to leave it aside and talk about whatever you want. 
You know, John Okada joked to his friends that he wanted to write the great American novel or the great Japanese American novel or the great Nisei novel. The novel ends uh, after a tragedy in in a Chinatown alley and Ichiro walks towards King Street Station looking, just looking for what lies ahead. And all he can find is a faint glimmer of hope, an insinuation of promise, as he calls it. And that's as far as John Okada could take his readers because he was still 20 years away from the time when Japanese Americans could finally articulate what happened. You know, Okada died in 71, you know, several years before we had the first Day of Remembrance here in Seattle, uh, which would kickstarted the popular campaign for redress and reparations. So, I mean, I guess for the inevitable question, you sort of touched on this earlier, but um, you know, detainment and incarceration are once again government policy, uh, I should say, for a while now. Um, and, you know, we can't help but look back and think about Japanese internment in comparison, especially when politicians make that comparison for us and do it favorably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how do you even begin um, to compare the two, you know, to put it in perspective when this, you know, we're supposed to learn about history so it doesn't repeat. And yet here we are again. You know, we st- I started this book under uh, the Obama administration. We allowed ourselves to indulge the belief that we lived in a post-racial society. And, and books like these were um, instructive, but they were history. You know, John Okada wrote that uh, the race hatred that put Americans of Japanese ancestry into concentration camps, uh, he described it as the indignation, the hatred, the patriotism of the American people. Uh, uh, that targeted innocent Americans following the attack on Pearl Harbor. Well, you know, of course, that's rising once again. Uh, in this present moment, we're seeing the normalizing of racism and nativism at the highest levels of government. Uh, we have a government now that openly says it's okay to attack others based on their differences, whether it be their religion, their race, or their even their immigration status. So you flash forward to the present, and the story of Japanese-American incarceration and Japanese-American resistance to incarceration in the American 20th century is regrettably no longer academic history in the 21st. Uh, you know, at this moment, the same prejudices and hysteria are being normalized. And, and we see that they were always there, that you just need to scratch the surface. And the same feelings that put Japanese-Americans into camp in World War II uh, were always there you know, just under the surface. Uh, the analogies are not precise, but the mass evictions ordered in the name of national security by the Western Defense Command in 1942 are disturbingly echoed by the deportations carried out today by immigration and customs enforcement. The experience of mass incarceration was not one pursued by Japanese Americans, obviously, but with the, the moral kind of authority of that experience comes the moral responsibility for us to stand with others, to stand in defense of others, threatened today by the same prejudice, hysteria, and failed political leadership that Congress identified as the causes of the Japanese-American incarceration. Links to the book John Okada, co-edited by Frank Abe, Greg Robinson, and Floyd Chung are in our episode notes. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 